The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know what happened next. To find out, listen to Womanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. No pain, the athletes say, no gain. Long ago, it occurred to me there was a corollary to that. Yes, no pain, no gain, plus no brain, no pain. Here is Herschel Walker's latest lie about paying for a girlfriend's abortion. She's the mother of my child. So you're going to see me a check or somebody giving a check. So that, that I'm saying it's a lot. Do you know what this $700 check is for? I have no for? idea what that can be for. Is that your signature I, on the oh, check, though? Let me see. It could be. It doesn't matter whether it's my signature or not. Yes, that's my check. NBC's interview with Herschel Walker. First, it was all a lie. There was no girlfriend. Then the check was not his. Then the check was his, but he didn't know who she was. Now, oh, that check. Yes, that's my check. But of course I sent her a check. She was the mother of my child, even though the date on the check is years before the birth of their child. I believe I surrendered the last of my dark paranoia conspiracy theories in my 20s. But a new one seems to be forming now. I think there is a ranch somewhere where they take potential conservative candidates from all around the world and test them to make sure they are stupid enough to appeal to the public, yet skilled enough that when caught in a lie, they have another lie ready and waiting. If they are not stupid enough, I assume that ranch hands hit them in the head with a rock and make them more stupid. 
end of conspiracy theory. Here is Mike Lee, seditionist sympathizer running scared for re-election to the Senate from Utah, and the Salt Lake City Tribune invites Lee and his opponent Evan McMullen to write op-ed pitches for their candidacies, and McMullen's starts, quote, I'm Evan McMullen, and Senator Lee's starts, quote, Mike Lee serves as a United States senator, and Mike Lee wrote about Mike Lee in the third person, 21 times. The op-ed is 300 words long. 21 times in the third person. Here's Ron Johnson, January 6th messenger, running scared for re-election to the Senate from Wisconsin, scared enough to have hired, as long ago as July, a law firm to handle a recount of the election that has not happened yet. And the law firm was named in some of the Department of Justice subpoenas in the investigation of the fake electors coup, because if you're Ron Johnson, the one thing you want is to leave a trail of evidence before you commit the crime. Here's Donald Trump, fresh off threatening Americans who happen to be Jewish and insinuating their first loyalty is to Israel, supposedly having dinner this week with Kanye West, fresh off a series of escalating anti-Semitic rants so powerful that he has not just self-defenestrated, thrown himself out of the professional seventh floor window, but first he self-immolated, lit himself on fire, and then thrown himself out of the professional seventh floor window, and somehow landed on top of a pile of Candace Owens business advice. And here's Elon Musk, who may or may not be buying Twitter. It's an even-numbered day. I think that means he's not buying Twitter. I'll have to check. And he's suing everybody. He jumps in to support or endorse or defend or amplify Kanye West's anti-Semitism or Kanye West planned to buy the hate website Parler. And Musk tweets a meme of himself wearing a Twitter logo, reaching out to West wearing a Parler logo. Hi, I'm Elon Musk, and this anti-Semitism has my endorsement. And then he deletes the tweet without comment. The terrifying thing in all of this is America's political and public morons, like Herschel Walker and Ron Johnson and Kanye West and Donald frickin' Trump and Elon Musk. I know he's an import. America's political and public morons might not be as moronic as some of the entries from the rest of the world. If you have not been following British politics this year, on July 7th, Prime Minister Boris Johnson was finally surgically removed from office, with the plan being to have him stay on as a caretaker until his Conservative Party could choose his replacement. It spent two months doing so. That is the equivalent in American politics of about 16 years. And on September 6th, Liz Truss succeeded Johnson as Prime Minister. On September 23rd, in the middle of the British economic downturn, she and her finance minister cut taxes for the rich and cut taxes for the corporations. The British pound collapsed and economic chaos ensued. So last Friday, Liz Truss fired her finance minister. Yesterday, her new finance minister repudiated everything her old finance minister had announced just three weeks earlier. And when it came time for Prime Minister Truss to go to the House of Commons and face the consequences on day 42 of her administration, she showed up late. Until she got there, in her place, the Conservative Party leader of the House, a woman named Penny Mordaunt, said the dumbest thing and was rewarded by the longest sustained laughter of any politician anywhere in living memory. 
The first voice you will hear suggesting that Prime Minister Truss is cowering under a desk somewhere is the Labour MP Stella Creasy. The second voice is Penny Mordaunt, who answers the desk reference in such a way that you have to think that if Liz Truss isn't hiding under one now, she will be hiding under a desk later. All we know right now is, unless she tells us otherwise, that the Prime Minister is cowering under her desk and asking for it all to go away. (laughs) Isn't it about time she did and let somebody else who can make decisions in the British national interest get in charge instead? Well, the Prime Minister is not uh, under a desk as the... If you have to seriously assure the House and reassure the public that the prime minister of your country is not hiding under a desk, guess what? You're going to need another new prime minister, even though it appears you ran out of qualified candidates several years ago. That reminded me of a Saturday Night Live sketch that spoofed the nuclear accident at the Three Mile Island plant in Pennsylvania in 1979. In it... President Carter, as played by Dan Aykroyd, is exposed to radiation and suddenly turns into a giant. At a press conference, a reporter asks, is it true that the president is 100 feet tall? The press secretary, played by the actor Richard Benjamin, answers, no, absolutely not. Another reporter then asks, is the president 90 feet tall? The press secretary answers, no comment. As I think of it, it was around that time Just about when I saw that sketch, end of March 1979, college senior, I just turned 20 years old, about to make my way in the world, that was when I first began to be terrified by a sneaking and vague suspicion that has only grown more and more clear and more and more terrifying as the decades have whizzed by. And for the last 10 or 20 years, I have spoken of this sneaking, vague suspicion to any younger person who has asked my advice about almost anything. I said it to my 24-year-old nephew, and he looked at me with alarm and resignation, and he said, I was afraid of that. This suspicion, now confirmed by Liz Truss and Elon Musk and Kanye West and Donald Trump and all the other morons, boils down to these four words. There are no adults. aren't. Still ahead on Countdown, the day I met Howard Stern and he basically decided where I would be going to college. There were no adults there, too. He was 20 years old at the time and I was 15. Sports. If all the teams that did really well in the regular season get the crap kicked out of them in the postseason, what exactly is the regular season for, anyway? Why baseball should not let anybody actually answer that question. And in worse persons, it's your chance to buy Donald Trump's balls. That's next. This is Countdown. This is Countdown. 
with Keith Oberman. Oberman. Larry David doing his impression of the PA announcer at Yankee Stadium, the late Bob Shepard. Still ahead on Countdown, Trump's balls are for sale again. Another new taxpayer stadium boondoggle in the works. And the day that Howard Stern decided where I would be going to college. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need whom you can help. Every dog has its day. Some good news from Friday. Our Friday dog, Smokey, has been reunited with his human. Back to the North Central Pound in L.A. where poor Jeezy has been adopted and then returned twice. As a result, he may be put on the kill list. Jeezy is easy to leash and to walk. He meets new people respectfully but slowly. He's got one negative. He guards his food. So do I. This requires retraining or a logistical workaround, not death. If you'd like to help Jeezy get rescued and saved, he will be in the pinned tweet at my account for dogs in need at Tom Jumbo Grumbo. You can pledge any amount to help defray the rescue's expenses, but just retweeting his story will also help. And thank you for doing so. Now, postscripts to the news, some headlines, some insights, some snark. Dateline Orem, Utah, one of two senatorial debates last night at Utah Valley College. Independent Evan McMullen, the former Republican, attacking seditionist Trumpist Senator Mike Lee for, well, seditioning. For you to talk about the importance of the, le- the Electoral College, I think, is rich. I think you, you know exactly how important it is. And I think you knew how important it was when you sought to urge the White House that had lost an election to find fake electors to overturn the will of the people. Senator Lee, that was the most egregious betrayal of our nation's constitution in its history by a U.S. senator, I believe. And it will be your legacy. As McMullen said that, Senator Lee creepily walked towards him, then demanded an apology and almost pulled off the Umbridge Act until he then explained that he was not trying to overthrow the government. He was just making phone calls to check out rumors about other people doing the fake elector bit. And Dateline Ashtabula, Ohio, in the second Ohio Senate debate, J.D. Vance was caught in at least two lies. The most egregious of them, Tim Ryan slammed him for tweeting on September 5th, 2021, just 13 months ago, that Alex Jones was a more credible source of information than was Rachel Maddow. The Midas touch people were nice enough to splice together a few things. First, you'll hear the debate clip, then proof of the lie that he made, and then Vance conveniently repeating the lie that he just made. We are running for the United States Senate. This is the highest office you could get in this country except for president. And he's running around backing these extremists, the most extreme people in the country, a guy who denied Sandy Hook. He's like, you know, he's credible. Thank you, Congressman. I mean, you don't have to. This I mean, is just, it's, it's, we can talk about, you know, how I got in hot water with with uh, my my uh, with saying that Alex Jones was a more credible source of information than Rachel Maddow. But like one of the things that I saw in the reaction to that tweet was people are terrified of unconventional people, of people who don't think the thoughts that they're supposed to think. And that to me is like the opposite of what you would want in an elite. You would want an elite that's willing to think outside the box. that's willing to say, well, maybe this is like a crazy idea, uh, but maybe it's true. Tape, brother. You're on tape, I man. I never said that, Tim. You, Go and run the tape and 
find out exactly okay. what I It'll said. It'll be like 30 minutes and we're all going to know I, your life. I, 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 I never said that. Oops. You mean oops, don't you? Just say oops and get out. This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, continuing the Ohio theme, baseball ran smack into another brick wall last night. The decisive fifth game of the Guardians-Yankees American League Division playoff series was delayed by rain at 7 p.m. when it was not raining amid reports that the Yankees delayed getting back to New York after Sunday's game, wanted Monday's game postponed until today. When they finally did decide to postpone it at 9.35 p.m., it had not yet rained heavily and had not rained heavily for two and a half hours. They will play the game, we think, at 4.07 Eastern today, clear and chilly. One other thing is clear. And for that matter, kind of chilly. The teams with the four best records in the National League and at least four of the teams among those with the six best records in the American League did not make it to the penultimate round of the baseball playoffs. The new idea to give the strongest clubs first round buys failed terribly. Now, I like the Phillies way more than I like the Braves. And Bob Melvin, whose Padres upset the Dodgers, is a friend of mine. This is not personal. But the National League playoff for the World Series is a third-place team that finished 11 games behind the leaders versus a second-place team that finished 22 games behind the leader. And that just leads to one question. What is baseball's regular season for? It used to be to decide the best team in each league, or maybe the best two teams in each league after they split into divisions over the course of a grueling six-month season in which all the teams played all the other teams the same amount of games, then those two best teams would play each other, and the worst thing that could happen would be an upset in which maybe the second-best team in the game was declared winners of the World Series. If either the Padres or the Phillies win the 2022 World Series, the champions of baseball will be the team with either the 10th, or 11th best record during the regular season. If you want to turn it into the NBA playoffs, go ahead, but don't think it counts. There are internal reasons the World Series TV audience gets smaller every year. One is that the game is repetitive and dull, and none of next year's rule changes are going to suddenly inspire hitters to try for singles up the middle instead of home runs. The other is, once upon a time, the World Series featured the champion of one league versus the champion of the other for a kind of mega championship. Now it's the American League champs versus the 10th or 11th best team. Who cares? Also, the possible American League champion Astros, they swept Seattle in their first round, but only after an 18-inning classic 1-0 game in the third and final deciding game. The Astros celebrated by tweeting a picture of a broom sweeping away a torn-up Seattle logo. It was classless. And for the team that cheated its way to the 2017 World Series championship, it was typical. Depend on the Houston Astros. They'll always let you down. Probably shouldn't have renamed that team from the Colt 45s to the Astros. And as to that first-round buy experiment, incidentally a better option... Give those top two teams extra resources in the first round. Let them take a 28-player roster into the first-round series and limit their opponents to 26. 
And an NFL note, Axios reports the mayor of Nashville is about to announce he has committed $1,400,000,000 of public money to build the Tennessee Titans a new domed stadium. The team will find $800 million more in private funding somewhere. The usual bullcrap will now ensue. Now we can host the Super Bowl. Now we can host the NCAA Finals. If you get two of each of those in the next 30 years, that will be a record, Nashville. But think of all the jobs it'll create. No new stadium ever has created new jobs. Only shifted jobs from one part of town to another. No new stadium ever has earned back the money taxpayers have been bilked for it. No new stadium ever was the best use of the public money involved. I once asked a sports economist to explain why all that is always true, and he said he could show me all kinds of complicated formulas, but there was something simpler. If a new stadium actually made a profit, the owners would build all the new stadiums themselves with private money and keep all the profits. That's what owners do. Coming up, that wasn't just any stringy-haired 20-year-old kid who talked me out of accepting a scholarship to Boston University 48 years ago this month. That was Howard Stern. That's coming up. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, Pennsylvania fascist Senate candidate Draz, Mehmet Oz, Video has resurfaced from his own show and from a guest shot from 2009 with Jimmy Kimmel of Oz claiming he has tasted his own urine. He said medical schools always made students like him taste their own urine. Yeah. Made. The runner-up, not a doctor, but one in charge of them, Therese Coffey, health secretary under new British Prime Minister Truss. Hey! Is Liz Truss still the Prime Minister? What? What do you mean, how's anybody supposed to tell? Just find out, huh? Minister Coffey is pushing a new plan to let patients get antibiotics directly from pharmacists without ever seeing a doctor. To buttress her position, she told a group of British civil servants that she's previously given her leftover antibiotics to friends and family, and that worked out okay. Seemingly every medical professional in England recoiled in horror at the thought of this, and about half of them also pointed out, oh, by the way, that's also illegal. But our winner, El Duche himself, is part of the eternal scam. Trump has emailed supporters yet another offer, supposedly based on breaking news, that a conservative newspaper had declared him the number one presidential golfer in history by a landslide, which is nonsense on its own, since William Howard Taft and Dwight Eisenhower were provably better. But here's the deal. Quote, we still have a few boxes left of our limited edition Trump golf balls. But once they're sold out, they're gone for good. Yes, that's right. It's your last chance to buy Trump's balls. Donald, display my balls. God knows they won't take up too much room. Trump, today's worst person in the world. Finally, 
to the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. The date on this one, a Tuesday of this week in 1974, is a guess and the other principal figure in the story denies it was him. I usually hate such inexactitude, but I think the story is worth it because the guy who denies it was him was Howard Stern, and it was him. I was 15 years old and just starting my college visits. My dad and I flew the very inexpensive Eastern Shuttle to Boston and Commonwealth Avenue and the Boston University School of Public Communications, which had surprised us by not only offering me early admission when I had not requested it, but which, upon arrival, knocked us over by saying they wanted to offer me a merit scholarship, a free ride, all expenses paid. To be fair, I was the editor of the high school newspaper and editor of the yearbook, sports director of the radio station. I'd been in the drama group. I had researched and had published a baseball reference book earlier that year, and I was the associate editor of the first guide to sports memorabilia, and I had an internship lined up in the public relations department of the Boston Celtics. So the admission was not much of a surprise. The merit scholarship? Let me tell you, the merit scholarship appealed fantastically to my father. My dad had already been socked for five years of private school because I was too bored to do well in public school, and now he was facing college money. This was new territory in Olbermann land. Nobody that we knew of on either side of my family had graduated from a four-year college since one of my great-grandfathers got a degree in wrought iron design around about 1885. And my dad had been offered a scholarship at a top architecture college and could not afford to take it. They were so poor, he had to go to work right out of high school, or his brother had no chance of finishing high school. Free college? At a good one? In the field his son wanted to go into? Dad liked this very much. The tour of what was then called the School of Public Communications went well. It was early fall, and there are few places in the Northeast that do not look their best in early fall. We were in the middle of Boston, but there were trees. It was far from home, but it was down the block from Fenway Park. I think the head of admissions took us on the tour. He was so fulsome that on my later college visits, I was actually a little offended that they treated me like just some other applicant. If I remember correctly, this was the first time that an adult handed me his business card, at least not in an ironic way. We were shown classrooms and radio and TV laboratories and the big tower where they kept all the freshmen, which looked to me like a high-rise apartment building, and there was nothing in the world I wanted more in 1974 than to live in a high-rise apartment building. And then they took us to the two college radio stations, the two separate sets of studios. And at this point, I think the admission director peeled off, left my dad and I on our own since we had seen everything, and he had somewhere to go, and we would be heading back from the studios right to Logan Airport for the shuttle back to New York City. I think the admissions director took us into the main studio of the Boston University AM station and introduced us to the disc jockey or pointed at him or something. And then the admissions director left. He must have, because what followed in the studio was not what that guy wanted me to hear. The disc jockey was a gaunt, kind of greasy-looking kid with hair down to the floor and the attitude of an inquisitor working on too little sleep. 
He claimed to be a junior. To me, he looked to be about 30 years old. We were not introduced by name, or if we were, I had forgotten his by the time he finished saying it. Where are you from, kid? Westchester, I told him. Oh, yeah? I'm from Long Island. You got a problem with that? I said, no, I had relatives on Long Island. Good answer. So you're applying here? I told him about the merit scholarship. Ah, la-di-da. Some kind of phenom? I explained about the Celtics internship. Listen, kid, you, you sound like you know what you're doing. So don't make the same mistake I did. The first two years, you don't get to take any radio or TV classes. Just general studies. I suddenly remembered having read that. I asked him, what was the point of just repeating high school for two more years? Exactly. Okay, you get it. And what's worse, the grad students, they control the real radio station. It's like organized crime here. See, this radio station, this crap shack, you can only hear this in the dorms. And it took me three years just to get two shows a week here. Tuesdays and Thursdays, middays. Nobody's in the dorms middays. Total waste of my time and of my exceptional talent. And so far, the classes are crap. So maybe what you do is keep the internship, but ditch the scholarship. I think it was at this point that my father said we had to get to the airport. He did not want me hearing more about ditching the scholarship. My college admissions strategy had been this. Maybe just go to the best school and let the radio and TV stuff come to me. But maybe go to a school that was really good in radio and TV and let the education just come to me. Then there was this Celtics internship confusing things even further, and now the offer of the free ride from BU. So my radio TV schools were BU with Ithaca College as the safety, and my good schools were, forgive me, Harvard and Cornell as my safety, which is kind of unfair because my graduating class in high school had like 70 kids in it, and four of us were applying to Harvard, and two of them had 4.0 grade averages dating back to the womb, and I didn't, and my only chance they were going to accept me would be because I would be only 16. BU was obviously a yes if they were going to pay for it. Ithaca was a yes, but I got a tour of the dorms, and the elevators were full of trash. This is not a euphemism. This is not a value judgment. The elevators had ankle-high garbage in them. Cornell had a communications program, but I couldn't find out much about it, and I couldn't find out much about the radio station, except that it was not dominated by grad students. Plus, Cornell had accepted me, and as I expected, Harvard had not. And not that this still bothers me, but I remember that the letter was dated April 9, 1975, and it was waiting for me in the mail when I got back from the Yankees' home opener on the afternoon of Saturday, April 12th. Not that it still bothers me. Frickin' Harvard. So I had like a week to choose between Cornell and a scholarship to BU, and then somewhere I read a story about how they had found a kid dead in the hallway of that big freshman dorm we'd seen in Boston, and I told my dad I would thus never be comfortable there, and of course that was just crap. I kept flashing back to what the kid on the carrier current BU radio station with the stringy hair down to the floor told me, and I kept thinking, I'm not going to get any radio experience until late 1977. I just couldn't do it. And so I went to Cornell, and Dad started writing checks. And before I get to the punchline of this one, I have to mention, sophomore year, my dad drives me and my stuff up to Cornell, and he gets turned around looking for my dorm, and I say, yeah, the good part is where we are. If you, if you take the next left, we'll be at the Cornell Architecture School, and... 
Whereupon he cuts me off and says, yeah, I know, it's Rand Hall, next left, second building on the right. I said, how do you know that? He says, remember I told you I was offered an architecture scholarship, but I couldn't take it because we didn't have any money and your Uncle Bill wouldn't have been able to finish high school? And I said, yeah. And he said, yeah, the scholarship was to here. During all the time I wrestled with which colleges to apply to, let alone which one to go to, my dad never told me that. Probably the first time I had respect for him as one sort of adult to another. And I still do. Anyway, 15 years later, or whenever it was, I'm doing sports in Los Angeles, and late on a Saturday night, this syndicated version of some New York radio shock jock show comes on the TV, and I look, and it's the don't-make-my-mistake-kid kid from Boston University in 1974. His name turns out to be Howard Stern, and he looks exactly the same. Years pass. And for some reason, when Howard Stern leaves AM radio to put his show on satellite... The first day of the satellite show, he invites people from TV networks and newspapers to cover the big switch. And from NBC, he asks for me. So I get up and I go and I get a moment with him and I do a shtick for my MSNBC show. And then I say, listen, we've met. And he says, nah. And I tell him and he says, I don't remember meeting you. And I say, of course not. I was 15 and we were not really introduced. And I mean, I had no idea it was you until I saw you on TV. And he says, it can't be. And I say, when you were a junior at BU, didn't you do only Tuesday and Thursday middays on the Carrier Current Station? And weren't you already bitter about it and bitter about management? And he says, yeah, but I don't remember meeting you. And so this was January 2006. And every time our paths have crossed since, we basically have repeated this conversation live or by text or whatever. And he insists, yeah, but I don't remember meeting you. And I have to explain that we didn't meet by name and I was much shorter then. And he says something like, how would that work? And sooner or later, I just give up. But it was him. I met Howard Stern in 1974 when he was 20 years old and I was 15. And he personally talked me out of going to Boston University. Thank you, Howard. And nicely as things worked out with Cornell and the best radio training ground in the country that Cornell contained and contains, yes, I'm still bitter about Harvard. I am. I've done all the damage I can do here. Help me out. Subscribe to this podcast or accost a random passerby or give it five stars or go outside and clap like a seal or something. Most of the music, including this, our theme from Beethoven's Ninth, was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown Musical Directors. All the orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Some other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis and appears courtesy of ESPN Incorporated. Musical comments from Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Larry David. Everything else was pretty much my fault. That's Countdown for this, the 651st day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. A new episode tomorrow. Till then, I'm Keith Alderman. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Good luck.
Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.